All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We're continuing our series in this book. This will be the, the last week we spend here for the next four weeks because starting next Sunday, we'll start our march towards Christmas. We are four Sundays away. It is amazing how quickly time is passing. But for today, we are going to march through this chapter. Now, with that said, this chapter covers... The crazy account of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, many of you don't know who King Nebuchadnezzar is. That's fine. But his journey, my prayer is, is familiar to all of us because he takes the journey that you and I must travel. If we are going to see God, it will be through the same journey that Nebuchadnezzar took. It will look radically different, but it has to do with humility because pride will blind you from seeing the glory of God. And so that's where we're going to do work this morning. Daniel chapter 4, I'm going to pray, then we're going to get to it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you remove distractions from our minds and our hearts. I pray you open up our eyes so that we can see the glory of your Son. Father, I pray that we humble ourselves before you, that we kill pride as we look to the cross. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, if I had to summarize Daniel chapter 1 uh, with one word, I would use the word faithful. In it you see a king coming, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, coming to a people in Judah. They seize the country. He wants to take over. He takes people captive, takes God's people captive. And yet you see God is still faithful to his people even in exile. And God is faithful for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he raises them up and puts them in positions where he can look after his people. And what you also see is Daniel is faithful in a foreign land. In a place where it's hard to be obedient to your God, Daniel is faithful. And you see this with the diet he chooses to go on. He has the king's food available to him. It's like going to Golden Corral and just eating vegetables. Right? You, you don't do that. But Daniel's like, no, in this land, even with this opportunity, I'm going to be faithful to my God. And we see that his faithfulness is also mirrored in God's faithfulness to him. And then you see in Daniel chapter 2, one word to describe that chapter would be hopeful. And I know some of us, all of us, if we live long enough, will experience hopeless situations. Your circumstances right now might be hopeless. Well, Daniel chapter 2 is a great chapter to check out. Here is Daniel. He's in captivity and he's in a foreign land made to learn a new language and new customs and everything is weird to him. It's strange living in a foreign land. And then this crazy king has a dream. And he calls all the smart people of the kingdom to come and interpret his dream. But he's not going to tell them his dream. He's like, no, I'm going to make sure you guys are the real deal. You're going to tell me what I dreamed and what it means. And obviously nobody could do that. Except Daniel. Word gets back to Daniel. He's getting ready to be executed. He's like, hey, what's, what's going on? What's the king's problem? The executioner explains it to him. And Daniel's like, hey, lo, uh, log on to Google uh, Calendar and set up in your calendar a time where I can come talk to you. We'll hash this thing out. He's hopeful in his God. And then what happens is he gets to his boys. He says, hey, I need you to pray for me. We're going in before the king. If this thing goes sideways, we all die. They start praying for each other. 
God reveals the dream to Daniel. Daniel goes in and tells the king, King, you saw this statue, this huge statue. Its head was gold, shoulders were silver, midline was bronze. You have iron and clay. It represents kingdoms. Your kingdom is represented by the gold, but it's going to pass away, and another kingdom's coming, and then another kingdom's coming, and then another kingdom's coming. But then there's a stone, not made with human hands. Dashes the statue, it disappears. And this stone becomes a mountain that covers the earth, and it's God and His kingdom, which will reign forever and ever. And Jesus' kingdom will know no end. And so Daniel interprets this dream, saves the lives. Now that's very, very important, because you and I both know right now life is not as it should be. You guys see the brokenness, you feel the brokenness, and you don't have to look far. You have to look in the mirror. We're messed up people. We're in desperate need of a king who can reign and bring peace and change us, transform our hearts. And if you look in our city, we're a broken city, we're a broken nation, as we live in a broken world. But make no mistake, the king who has come is coming again, and his kingdom will be forever. That gives hope to me, and that gives hope to you and all who wait for the king to return. Then you get to Daniel chapter 3, and then it just gets crazy in Daniel chapter 3. Right? Nebuchadnezzar, filled with pride, he's like, "Ah, I don't like that statue of gold, just the golden head. I don't like the idea of my kingdom coming to an end, so I'm going to make this huge, massive, golden statue. Because my kingdom is going to stay around forever. So he builds this huge statue made of gold and strikes up the band. And when the bands hit the notes, the people hit their knees. And everyone bows down except for a couple of dudes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> king calls them out. I want you to hear the response. The king's like, hey, maybe, maybe you guys can't hear. Maybe the guy over here on the flute wasn't hitting the right notes, and maybe you got confused. But we're going to do this again, and you can bow the knee. And listen to their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now now that's pretty cool, because what they are saying is, God is bigger than the king right now. You can see the king, most powerful person on the planet. You can't see God, but these three are convinced that God is bigger. And here's the cool part. You and I understand this, right? A furnace maxed out on heat, burning the men who bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they fell in, is nothing for the God who created and sustains the sun. That's heat. The furnace isn't a big deal to God. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew in their minds, knew in their hearts, that the God that they served is bigger than their circumstances. And we need to know that. That God is bigger He's bigger than your circumstances. He's bigger than your downside. He's bigger than your faults. He's bigger than the health problems you're going to have or have right now. He's bigger than the relationship issues that you have. God is bigger. But then we also see, as they keep on answering, but if not. So if God doesn't show up, and I'm about to be barbecued, this is what they say. If God does not show up, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We heard the band. We're not bowing the knee. Why? Because they found something better. Something better than even saving their own lives. And then if you remember, we looked at the uh, the parable of the treasure in the field. If you find a treasure, and it's filled with $2 billion. So you you walk out, and you stumble across this treasure. You open up $2 billion. You close that thing. You go and sell everything you have. And you try to buy the field. Why? 
because the treasure in the field is more valuable than everything that you have. And Jesus is like, that's what the kingdom of heaven's like. Jesus is more valuable than anything you have, including the breath in your lungs. He's better than life itself. And so, all the way back from 600 BC, we see that God is bigger and God is better. And my prayer is that we see Jesus as bigger and better. And then that gets us to Daniel chapter 4. And it gets us to the issue of pride and to humility. Pride and to, to, and all of us will struggle with this. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had a huge kingdom. He was able to do some pretty cool things. Took over a lot of countries. Built a lot of cool roads. You guys might have heard of the Hanging Gardens. One of the ancient wonders of the world. This dude's the one that put it into place. Like, this guy was a big deal back in the day. And his pride got to him. Now, here's the crazy thing. You and I have a tendency, a heart built towards building our own kingdoms. There's over uh, 7 billion people on the planet, and all of us are drawn to building our own kingdoms, doing things so we get the glory. That's where our heart goes for if, if we do not humble ourselves before God and live for His glory. And so the journey Nebuchadnezzar goes on here in this book, in this chapter, is the journey you and I have to go on. And it has to be consistent. Because it's crazy what we get prideful over. Prideful over hobbies, over sports, over coaching, over church, over giving, over relationships, over abilities, over brains. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going through my own life. I, I looked and my sister was smarter than I was. So I had pride before I took the ACT. I knew I was going to get a higher score on the ACT than her. Right? She's not too bright. That's what I thought. And I'm pretty sharp. Well, I took the ACT, and that's a humbling effect on my life. My score was not close to my sister's score. And I'm not telling you what I got. <laughs> humbling, right? And then, so, so I gave up on smarts. I'll find something else to find confidence in and, and let people know how great I am. So then I went to the athletics. Right. Thought I was special at, at basketball. And then I went to Kentucky Christian. Now, listen, Kentucky Christian has about 700 people in their school. Right. 700 people in their school. I'm just going for a visit. Well, it turns out that about 15 of them could play basketball. And what I didn't know is they'd have guys from Division One that either failed or didn't make it in the first semester come to Kentucky Christian, get eligible, play basketball, keep their eligibility alive and then transfer to a different college. I didn't know that. I'm going in just for an open gym time to show them how great I am so they can recruit me, right? I go in and I realize on the first possession when the guy I was guarding goes by me and does a reverse windmill dunk that I'm in trouble. I'm like, I don't need to guard this guy. Well, I started to look around. The four other guys weren't slouches either. I go, I need a sub. I need to get out. Humbling, right? And this is the point. When you get to this passage, something as insignificant as an ACT score and athletic ability is our pride before God. So if I wanted to be humble at basketball, I needed to go to someone that was better. If I needed to be humbled in the classroom, I go to someone who was smarter. In life, God is infinitely more valuable and bigger and greater than I am. And there is no comparison. And when you see the greatness of God, it brings humility to your life.
the air we're breathing, we did nothing to do. The fact that we're here, we didn't do anything for that. God does that. And if you can grasp how big and awesome God is, you can live a life of humility. And so that's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for you this morning. And so let's go on this journey with good old Nebuchadnezzar, um, a king who conquered country after country, but couldn't find God. A king who could build magnificent creations and empires, but couldn't see God. A king who saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rescued in a way that only God could do, and yet he forgets about God. Well, he gets ready and he has a dream. So I want you to see the first part. The stage is set. Look at Nebuchadnezzar's heart. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. All of a sudden now, he's not the Most High. He's pointing to the God who is Most High. So I wonder what happened. How did Nebuchadnezzar's heart change? Because the chapter before, he's building this huge golden statue in honor of himself so people will praise his name. But now he's saying in verse 3, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures forever from generation to generation. He finally recognizes the greatness of God. This man has been humbled. How? Well, he has a dream. And now that should bring back to memory what happens in chapter 2. My man has a dream, he can't sleep, and so he calls in the wise men. As a matter of fact, he goes, hey, I was prospering in my palace, living a life of ease, but then I have this dream. So this is about 20 years after the, uh, the whole furnace incident. God's grown cold in his heart. He's forgotten about the God who rescues. He's back on to his empire, his kingdom, and he has this dream. I want you to hear this dream. It's, it's a little bit different. It said there was this exceedingly tall tree in the middle of the earth, and it started to grow and grow strong, and the tree reaches to the heavens, and everybody could see it on the planet. It was visible for the whole earth. The leaves were beautiful, the fruit was abundant, and there was food for all. The animals found shade under it, the birds lived in it, and all the people were fed from it. This tree is substantial. So get that picture. Big tree sprouting up over, covering the earth. Looks like it's good, right? But the dream doesn't end. Then a holy one from heaven comes down from heaven and proclaims, chop down the tree. It's time to get rid of it. The branches were cut off, the leaves were removed, and the fruit scattered. The animals and the birds ran away. But leave the stump and the roots in the earth. And then the angel says, let him be wet with dew of heaven and let him eat with the ox. Let his mind be changed from that of a man to a beast until seven periods of time have passed. Until a full amount of time has passed. Like you're, you're, if you're dreaming this, you're going to be a little worried. And then he says, so that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over the lowliest of men. So the purpose of this dream is God is humbling a man. He's humbling a king. This is grace. If we don't humble ourselves and we miss out God our entire lives, we've wasted our lives. The whole purpose of you and I living is for us to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You want your life filled with joy? It's found in Christ, not away from Christ. And pride will keep you from Him. So he has this dream, and then, of course, guess what he does? Calls in his wise men. Can the wise men interpret the dream? No. 
So he calls his boy Daniel. Hey, Daniel, I need you to come in. I want you to see Daniel's reputation. This is pretty cool, right? So Nebuchadnezzar gives Daniel the nickname Belteshazzar after his own gods. But notice what he says of Daniel. So Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom the spirit of the holy gods dwell. So Nebuchadnezzar notices something different about Daniel. You see, God does something different in Daniel's life than anybody else that I have in here of my wise men. And then he goes on and says, O Belteshazzar, which was Daniel, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, right? He's developing a reputation of a man who's dependent on God. Daniel's life is marked with humility. Why? Because he knows the greatness of God. When he interpreted the dream before, he made sure that Nebuchadnezzar didn't give him credit, but he gave credit to the God that revealed it to Daniel. That's an amazing fact about Daniel. Daniel's life is marked with humility. And then you see in verse 18, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. If you would think that would build up some pride. Right, you're right. None of those guys can do it. I can hack it, though. That's not what Daniel does. He's continually pointing people to God. He goes, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Right? Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know who's doing what for Daniel. Daniel does, but he knows there's something different about Daniel. Then you get to the interpretation. Who do you think the tree is in Daniel chapter 4? Who do you think it represented? Big tree chopped down. Nebuchadnezzar. You think Daniel wanted to tell Nebuchadnezzar about that? Uh-uh. This dude's crazy. He's throwing people in furnaces. He's killing people for saying the wrong things, for not being able to interpret dreams. Like, this guy is not right. And Daniel knows the interpretation. He's like, man, this stinks. King, may this be for somebody else and not you, but this is what the dream means. You're that tree. You're filled with pride. You're going to be chopped down. You're going to be humbled. You're going to be out with the animals. You're going to be eating grass. You're done. But then Daniel gives him a little bit of instruction. You see in verse 26 is where we'll pick it up. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree and your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Right? So he's saying, hey, you're going to go out and eat with the ox and not have it too well. Stay outside like an animal. But when you come to your senses and you know that heaven rules, your kingdom will be restored to you. What was the point of this humiliation? The point of this humiliation is that Nebuchadnezzar knows that there's a bigger guy on the planet than himself. And it's God who reigns and rules. That's what it means. You're going to do this until you know that heaven rules. That is a humbling thing to come before the presence of God. And then Daniel says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel's saying, hey, you better turn from your sin. You better stop what you're doing. I don't know what this is going to look like in your life, Nebuchadnezzar, but it's coming. So you better stop what you're doing. Nebuchadnezzar makes it for a year. Verse 28. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. I want you to get this in your picture. Let's say you lived in the best house in the United States. I don't know what that looks like. Some million dollar mansion, maybe billion dollar mansion. You live on it and you go out to the balcony and then check out the view. 
At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He's saying, hey, there's some pretty cool things out here. Look at this building. Look at this statue. Look at the hanging gardens. Look at the paved streets. Yeah, I did that. He says, for my glory. You see, it's easy to be hard on Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? You and I do this all the time. When we succeed at something, we want people to notice how great we are. And if you listen for it, you hear it all the time. I had a grandma that would brag about her yard. Guess how many people cared about her yard? One. Herself. Right? Nobody. And, and you're just like, what do you, who cares if you rake the leaves? There are only three on the ground. Right? And it was, but then I started thinking, who cares if you're great at basketball, honestly? Or if you're great at football? If that is the whole goal of your life, you're wasting your life. Who cares if you make a ton of money? You can't take it with you. You can enjoy it for 100 years. And, and that's being generous, just so you guys know. I don't even think we'll be able to enjoy it for 100 years. Who cares if you have a marriage where your spouse is beautiful because eventually that will fade? A lot of guys are, are looking for the prettiest girl on the planet. Um, that doesn't last. Or if you're looking for the strongest guy on the planet, guess what? That doesn't last. Listen, I used to be proud of my hair a long time ago. I used to make fun of my dad, right? Dad, you've got three hairs on your head. God can count them and so can I. Why don't you just cut them? And he goes, hey, man, just wait. Just wait. Just, and sure enough, guess what? I don't make fun of him anymore. I get uncomfortable when people start bringing up. It's amazing what we find pride in. Nebuchadnezzar, my man did a lot. I, I can see, like, if I get pride in the stuff that I've done, which is nothing, I can see how Nebuchadnezzar could be there on his balcony looking out. Say, Look at this. And he's missing God. So check out what happens. While the words were still in the king's mouth, this is verse 31. While he's saying this, look at this, what I've done for my glory. There fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, and his hair grew like as long as each eagle feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He has these long fingernails and becomes super hairy and he's eating grass and you're just wondering. He was just on his balcony, the best place on the planet. Now he's out hanging out with the ox because he doesn't know any better. That is a humiliating place to be. Have you ever been humbled? It's embarrassing, but it could be for your good. So here it says, until seven periods of time have passed, until you know that heaven rules, until you know that there's a God in heaven, this is how you are going to live. And so this is my prayer. 
And, and there's, there's a ton of examples that we can use for this. There was a, a teacher um, a few weeks ago uh, talking about how uh, the Bible is ignorant and that you can't believe what was written a long time ago, um, that you should live how you know best to live. That's arrogance. That's pride. The teacher's been on the planet maybe 35 years, maybe 40 this is the Word of God that has overcome book burnings and stomping it out, trying to get rid of it, trying to... This is a reliable Word from God. And when God speaks, I think those who were created by God should listen and walk and live according to His Word. It is an arrogant thing to say, I don't know if there's a God and I don't care. I'm going to live for me. And yet millions are doing it. And so I, I'd love to show you, uh, uh, what, I don't, uh, there's, there's not a good way to show this. Tucker, will you stand up real quick? So, so Tucker's living his life. He's doing what he wants. Come on up here. Face this crowd, all right? So out here, <laughs> out here, this is what happens. So, so Tucker can say, you know what? This is how I'm going to handle work. And so work will be over here. Mr. Fight, you mind standing up over here? Mr. Fight's representing work. Right? So, so Mr. Fight is Holmes High School gym class. What Tucker thinks is, I'm going to work and do my gym class, and it's going to bounce over here. I'm going to do what I think's right, and it bounces back for my glory, right? So I think they should pay me this much. I'm going to use it for this, this, and this. It's all about him, right? That's how some people live. Mike, stand up. Come on over here. Over here, Coach Tucker also coaches football. Mike represents football, right? So Coach Tucker's like, you know what? I'm going to coach football. I'm going to be coach of the year. I want people to recognize how many wins we get. It's all about me. And so he interacts with football, but it bounces off of football and comes back for his glory. Right? Corey, would you stand up? Coach Tucker could say, you know what? I'm married to Corey, and you know, I'm going to treat her how I want to treat her. And whatever she does, it's going to be for my glory. Right? So she better have this done, and she better do this, because it's all about me. Right? And some marriages operate like Some relationships operate like that. That's deadly. It's prideful. So, so that's another one. Um, another one, summer break. Donovan, stand up. Donovan represents summer break. You can come over here. So Coach Tuck, what do you have to do over summer break? Uh, depends. Um, I have other jobs and we went to Florida. Uh, get the house ready, clean. All right. That's what Donovan represents. Everything that happens in the summer. So Coach Tucker could think, you know what? This is my summer. It's about me. I'm going to do what I need to do. And so everything goes in here. This is what I'm doing. Boom, 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 boom. And it bounces back for his glory. Right? That's one way to live. Right? Now, Coach Tucker, this is going to be tough. Right? I'm not going to jump on you. But when Jesus gets a hold of your life, right? Now is wrapped around him, right? He's done. He doesn't do what he wants to do. He could. This is just an illustration, right? But now what happens is before it gets to school, he's running it through Christ, right? If Christ is my life, I want to make sure that I'm working and teaching a gym class so that whatever happens here is how Christ has called me to live and work and be. And so he's called us to be gentle, called us to be peacemakers. And so he's striving to do that at school. And then what happens is as he does that, it bounces back. He doesn't get the credit. He's making much of Jesus, right? Then it comes over here to football and coaching, and all of a sudden wins don't matter as much. And moving a ball up and down the field while you want to be a good coach and you want to enable men to do what they're called to do and be who they should be on the field, all of a sudden now it's more important to affect and impact lives of young men.
So now, Coach Tucker, if he's asking Jesus, how do I, how do I train up these men? Give me wisdom in leading these young hearts. So they're not consumed with their own glory. And I'm not consumed with my glory. Now all of a sudden how he coaches and treats young men, boom, bounces off. And it doesn't glorify him, it glorifies Christ. And then in a marriage, this is transforming in a marriage, in any relationship. Any relationship, friendships, marriage relationships, any relationship, mom, dad, parent, all relationships. If your goal is to love somebody and care for somebody the way Christ has called you to, guess who gets the glory? Jesus. And so in a marriage, now all of a sudden it doesn't come, become about Tucker. He's praying to love his wife the way Christ loves the church. What did Christ do for the church, for you and me? Yeah. Laid his life down. Husbands, if you would lay your lives down for your wives, your marriage will be infinitely better. And Jesus will get the glory. And then when it comes to summer, Coach Tuck's right, he did have free time. But he donated a week to go on a beach trip, a 15-hour bus trip with Phil in the van. <laughs> right? We had to listen to you sing. <laughs> Not loudly. But all of a sudden now his summer's done become about his time and what I'm going to do it becomes about what Jesus called me to do. All right, thank you guys. You can sit down. And so, so you read this and, and you see this and I want you to see how the story concludes and then we're going to make a beeline for the cross because that's where you and I have to go. So what do you think happens to Nebuchadnezzar? Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. You see, when you humble yourselves, you stop praising yourself and praising God. He was on the balcony saying, look at what I did for my glory, for my majesty. Now he's saying, blessed be the Most High. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among inhabitants of earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's how big God is. God will accomplish exactly what he set out to accomplish. Then he says, at the same time, my reason returned to me and the glory of my kingdom and my majesty and splendor returned to me and my counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. And now look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. That's the, the whole point of the story. I now praise the king of heaven. Not myself but him. Now, my question to you is, how do you kill your pride? All of us have pride in our hearts. The cross is the place where pride goes to die. I want you to think about this. Jesus, the author and sustainer of life, humbles himself, being born in a barn, Carrying a cross, nailed to a tree, lifted up, dead and buried. That's not just some dude out there. That's the creator and sustainer of the universe. Empties himself, humbles himself to do that. You and I cannot look at the cross and think, well, I'm pretty awesome. I'm pretty special. We should be blown away that the king of the universe would come here and die on a cross so that you and I might have life. So when you see the glory that belongs to Christ and you see his humility taking up a cross and dying and being dead and buried 
And then you see his glory raised from the dead, ascending to the Father so that every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That should blow us away. That should kill our pride. Because why did he go to the cross in the first place? Because you and I couldn't cut it. You see, my sin separated me from God. There is no way I can get to God on my own. Heaven is not my birthright. Hell is. I've rebelled against God. I didn't want anything to do with him. And yet what we see is Jesus, even when I was a sinner, came and died for me. And so now when I take it personal, when I look at the cross, I'm thinking, gosh, is there some other way? Could I have done something differently? There is no other way. God comes and lays his life down. That is humbling. That God would do that for me and not just me, for you. So if you want to kill pride, you look to the cross. If you live however you want to, you can make it for a few years, 10, 20, 30. But eventually you're going to stand before God. But then it's too late. And so my prayer is today, I'm asking God to do something only God can do. I'm asking God to open up eyes so that you can see the glory that is Christ. And when you see His glory, I pray that you humble yourself before God. You know when you go to the doctor? When you're sick. A lot of people think they're okay without God. I don't need anything. When you recognize you're a sinner separated from God, you'll run to Christ. Because He paid that price. And here's the awesome part. When you go to Christ, you get God. And you find out that was what life was all about anyways. And when you make much of Jesus, you're like, well, that sounds like a boring life. That's where you're going to have joy maxed out. I promise you it's true. It's true in my life. It'll be true in your life. I'm going to pray and then we're going to do the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is just a reflection back on what Christ has done for us. That's a humbling meal. But it's also a joyful meal because one day we're going to eat it again in heaven with Christ our King. And man, when we see His glory in heaven, when He returns, nothing like it. All right, let's pray and then we'll eat. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your people. Lord, I pray that You do what only You can do. And so I know there's hearts right now burning. They don't know why. Pray that Your Spirit moves, convicts them of sin, convicts all of us of sin so that we can run to the cross where there's forgiveness and mercy and grace and new starts. I pray that we humble ourselves before you. I pray that we make much of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.